0: Well, it's a privilege to stand before you one last time to bring God's word to God's people here. I'm grateful for this opportunity to preach, and I'll just say, as a personal note, I'm grateful for the, the various opportunities I've had to minister among the, the saints of Christ church. I am um, only a little bit intimidated that I stand here on a Sunday evening following the esteemed Dr. Ferguson, who <laughs> stood in this place one week ago. Um, it, <laughs> Thanks, Daryl. I appreciate that. Um, what a blessing it was to have him bring God's word, and I'm excited to preach this evening. Um, we have a great text from the second half of 1 Thessalonians 4. It's a passage that's probably familiar to many of you. You've Probably heard it in funeral services. I, I believe Pastor Greco preached from this text just within the last couple of weeks at Van Van Zandt's funeral. Um, but it is, a, it is a passage that gives us hope. It reminds us that death does not have the final word, that Christ has the final word. And because of Christ's death and resurrection, he has defeated death. And because of his resurrection, we know that we who are in Christ will rise again. We, too, will be forever with him. So let us look to this passage. But before we do, let us pray and ask God's blessing upon the reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Gracious and merciful God, we thank you for your word. We know that it is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, we pray that by your spirit... And through the word that you would do your work among your people in this place tonight. We believe that that you are with us and we trust in your guiding providence and your Holy Spirit to carry your word along. We pray, O God, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 beginning with verse 13. in his holy and inerrant word. What happens when people die? That's a question that's been asked countless times down through the ages. Donald Barnhouse was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for over 30 years in the middle of the last century. And he lost his first wife to cancer. And as he was driving home from the funeral with his children in the car with him, he was Struggling with his own grief, but he was also wanting to offer words of hope and comfort for his children. He sat in silence and he didn't know what to say. And suddenly they were passed by this large moving truck. And the shadow of this truck was cast over their car. And Barnhouse, who was the master of illustrations, knew he had an illustration to tell his children. And he asked them this. He said, children, would you rather be run over by a truck or by its ch- shadow the children said well of course dad we'd rather be hit by the shadow that can't hurt us at all and Barnhouse said do you know that Jesus was run over by the truck of death in order that only its shadow might run over us Now, I tell you that illustration just to help us to consider what Christ has done. But I also recognize as I look over this congregation and and I have walked with you through the valley of the shadow of death. and, And sometimes it does feel like that truck has hit you. And we'll talk about that. But what this text does is it lifts our eyes to what Jesus has done and the hope we have because of his resurrection In that illustration, Dr. Barnhouse was seeking to teach this truth to his children in a way that they would understand. But there's something that is unknown about death. There's something that people fear about death. It's unavoidable. It's a sure thing. We say that it is one of the two sure things in this world, death and taxes. We know that. However, the question that believers should ask is what happens to Christians when they die? We know that as we've seen, as, as various ministers here have, have preached these texts from 1 Thessalonians, we know that this is a new church, and Paul is writing to primarily new believers. And already in this chapter, he's given them admonition about walking in purity, walking in holiness, and loving one another. And he, he even says in the first half of chapter 4, he says, I know that you are doing these things. He commends them for their good works. But there seems to be an element of confusion that he's addressing here. And he he does that by means of... He addresses it in verse 13 by means of two negatives. The first he uses is a negative phrase that is often used in the Pauline epistles to introduce new material. He says that he does not want them to be uninformed, brothers. Now, I grew up... uh, listening to the King James, and the King James Version says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. I heard a preacher one time say that that the largest church he knew of was the Church of the Ignorant Brethren. (laughs) But these words, especially in the King James Version, sound to our ears a bit offensive, but it was a formula that was used, as we said, in other places. Paul would use it to introduce new material, to teach them things that they needed to know. Most most commentators think that the Thessalonians were struggling to understand how to view death and what the afterlife looked like for believers who had died. They seemed to be confused over whether they would ever see their departed loved ones again. Scripture, as as you may know, in the Old Testament, there are references where it speaks of ...of the resurrection, but it's somewhat obscure and it's, it's not real clear. And so Paul is helping them understand what, um, what Christ's resurrection... ...and the difference it makes for those who have died, believers who have died. And, and they're living just two to three decades after Christ's resurrection and ascension. But they were also influenced by a pagan culture in which they lived... They um, had recently been saved out of that culture. And for the Greeks of that cultural era, they believed that this life was all that there was. Now, if you were to walk through a cemetery today and, and observe the inscription on the gravestones, you might see Bible references ...by a culture that has been influenced by Christian thinking. Maybe you would see one that says, I am the resurrection and the life... ...or the Lord is my shepherd. However, I read this week that in in the first century... ...you might find inscriptions that said things like this. We are nothing. See, reader, how quickly we mortals return from nothing to nothing. Or this. If you want to know who I am... The answer is ash and burnt embers. Not very hopeful, is it? I don't think any of us are going to be uh, doing our funeral pre-planning with those inscriptions in mind. But Paul is giving hope to a hopeless society. They were wrongly informed by their culture. But we too can be influenced by a culture that is wrongly informed. Many people today live as though this life is all that there is... Their motto seems to be, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. They think that all there is, is today, so they have to live it up for today. But Paul wants them and us to be informed about something bigger, something more than this earthly existence. He wants them to be informed with the truth about Christ, his resurrection, and the difference it makes in their lives today. And also, the difference it makes for those who have fallen asleep. He uses that metaphor, falling asleep for death. He wants to give them sound theology to inform their grief. Now, that might seem strange to us, that that good theology can bring comfort, but it does. Right theology brings comfort to those who are sorrowing. Think about it. Theology is knowledge about God. And God is much bigger than our struggles... It doesn't mean that our struggles or our grief is not real. It simply means that our great God, if we are in Christ, if we are God's children, that God is orchestrating all things for our good, even the hard things, even the incredibly grievous things. God is with us, sustaining us, sanctifying us, making us like Christ. God is with us. So right thinking about God sustains us, in our time of grief and our troubles. So Paul says, don't be uninformed. He goes on with a second negative. He says that he tells them not to grieve like others in their culture would grieve. Now, he doesn't forbid grief. No, that's not what he's saying. He said that, and because we know that grief is a right and godly response to loss. Grieving the loss of a loved one is really showing gratitude ...to God who has given the gift of that person into our lives. It's showing honor to God because he's the giver of all good gifts. And it's showing honor to that person's memory... ...and the gift they were to us by God's grace. We see many examples in scripture of men and women... ...who grieved the loss of loved ones. Joseph grieved the loss of his father... David grieved the loss of his son, his infant son, but also the loss of his son Absalom. Mary and Martha, of course, grieved. And most notably, as, as we've seen recently in the preaching through John, that Jesus grieved at the death of his friend, Lazarus. So Paul is not saying don't grieve. He's simply saying don't grieve like the pagans who have no hope beyond this current life. They see this life as all there is. Don't be like that. Don't grieve with despair. Death for the believer is something entirely different. And that is what he sets to to tell us in the next point, which is this. The center of the sure hope of the resurrection. What is the center of the sure hope of the resurrection? It's Jesus. In this case, the Sunday school answer is the right answer. And Paul lays out his logic here in verse 14. Look with me if you will there. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So he's laying out this case. It's an if-then statement. Because one thing is true, then this other thing necessarily is true. Now he's not saying that we make the resurrection true by our belief in it. Don't, don't mistakenly hear me to think that, that that's what Paul is saying. He's saying that because Christ has been raised, because Christ died and triumphed over the grave, then we have hope. Those who are asleep in Christ will also rise. Christ will bring them with him. They are Christ's. And, and death cannot stop God's purposes in bringing them to himself. Christ's resurrection has really initiated the final resurrection for believers. How is this possible, you say? Well, it's because of our union with Christ. We are in Him. We are united to Christ. Paul uses this phrase often to describe the state of believers, that they are in Christ. We could preach multiple sermons on what it means to be in Christ, but just briefly, we need to say that Being in Christ means to be clothed with Christ's righteousness. It means that you have trusted Christ fully for your salvation. You have accepted his sacrifice and his offer of salvation. It means that you have been brought into union and communion with Christ. You are hidden and sealed in him. And there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ, Scripture tells us. In Christ we have been justified... And adopted into God's family. We are a new creation in Christ. And if you are in Christ tonight, you are enjoying those benefits of justification, adoption, and sanctification that we quoted this morning in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. These benefits include the assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increasing grace, and perseverance therein to the end. But union with Christ doesn't just involve our spiritual side. We are embodied souls. And our union with Christ also involves our body. And that union with Christ does not stop at the grave. Death cannot and will not destroy that union with Christ for the believer. Death is a separation of soul and body. We read in in various places in scripture and we're taught that ...that upon death the, the, that, that the souls of believers are immediately with the Lord... ...they are immediately present with the Lord... ...but the body waits to be glorified and reunited with the soul in the presence of the Lord. Again, drawing from the shorter catechism which says in, chapter, in, verse, in question and answer 37... ...what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? And it says, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness... And do immediately pass into glory. But their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. And that baffles our understanding to think that that those that have gone on to glory, that their souls are with their Savior, and their bodies rest in the grave, somehow, mysteriously, are still united to Christ. And and that's something that, that... I can't. don't feel like I can completely wrap my head around. But it should bring us comfort as we think about it. And this truth is probably what prompted the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism to say in their first question, What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer to that is that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And a supporting scripture for that is, is Romans 14, 8... ...which says, if we live, we live to the Lord... ...and if we die, we die to the Lord... ...so then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So those who have died in Christ... ...are still in Christ... ...and they, even in death, they are the Lord's. We are still in Him, even in the grave. And God will always care for those who are in Christ even if they're away from the living and we can't see them and we're separated from them. I've read of, of, of individuals who who've, have, have married a spouse from another country and, and sometimes a spouse is deported and they are years apart from each other. In, in our day and age and the technology that we enjoy, that separation is not as severe as, as it was 100 years ago. But I think about that, and I think about those that have departed and gone on. There's a separation, and there's a grieving, and there's a loss, and and there's a missing of them. But yet, there is an assurance that we will see them again someday because of Christ's resurrection. And God is so concerned with those who have gone on that when he gathers all those who are in Christ, that they will be the first to go. They won't be second-class participants in the day of Christ's return. They will rise first, the scripture tells us. And this brings us to our final point this evening, and that is the comfort that comes because of the sure hope of the resurrection. Christ's resurrection is the sure hope of our is the source of our hope. And his return is the comfort that brings us hope. Paul declares this to them based upon a word from the Lord. He uses that phrase, which perhaps seems a little curious, and perhaps it does mean a direct word from the Lord. Paul was an inspired writer of Holy Scripture. We know that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write the words that we have. But one commentator in particular that I read said... It's probably just that he's paraphrasing the words of Christ. The word of Christ that he had was Matthew 24... ...where Jesus talks about his return... ...and talks to his disciple about his return. There's many parallels there. And we're given details about his return. And we see here five things that are given in this passage about Christ's return. One, he will descend. And he will descend with three things. With a cry of command with the sound of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and then we will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, if you try to picture that, there's a lot of things there you may not completely understand. And I'm going to tell you at the outset, I'm not going to fully describe this to you. Because there's allusions to Old Testament passages, and we have to understand the big picture of it. And not get bogged down in the details of it. We need to remember that when God's presence is physically experienced by the authors of scripture, that words fail them. We see that when when Moses encountered God on Mount Sinai. We have glimpses of that appearance of God, that theophany, as as commentators and, and biblical scholars like to call it. An appearance of God. And you see his presence. What, what happened when Isaiah saw God? He, he described God in the best way that he could. The same with the Apostle John. The same with Ezekiel. And so there are things that, that words fail when it comes to describing our holy God. But we do see some exciting insights into Christ's return. It says he will descend scripture again and again speaks of heaven being above us now we recognize that we live on a on a ball in space and and so where it is above us i can't tell you but scripture does describe it in that way jesus said that he in john six thirty eight that he came down from heaven not to do his own will but the will of him who sent me it says in Acts 1.11 when Jesus ascended and the angels were there offering comment and, and description to the people that were there. it said that, and, and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Christ's return will be some manifestation of his, present, his presence in our current reality. And I know that sounds kind of vague, but it's really exciting when you think about it. Christ's presence will be among us. We see that it's accompanied with a cry of command. Well, a command implies authority. One who has authority, and certainly the Lord Jesus Christ has authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So it's an authoritative command. Perhaps it is to gather all the elect together. We, we don't understand completely what it is. There's a voice of the archangel, and there's the sound of the trumpet, and commentators like to speculate on which archangel it is. I'm not here to offer comment on it. I'm just knowing that, that it will be such an earth-shattering event, that it will be f- heralded with fanfare and with blasts appropriate to the occasion. We see that, uh, again, referencing back to Mount Sinai, that there were so many things that happened there, the, the thunder, the lightning, the thick cloud, and a loud blast like a trumpet. A, a passage that that um, points to God's appearance is from Joel three, where it says, "The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. And again and again throughout Scripture we see when the when God appears, That there are physical manifestations and things where even creation recognizes who God is. These are figurative things, but they point to a real reality. And then it says, our passage says, that we will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We, We read there from Acts Uh, chapter 1, that Jesus was taken up into the clouds at his ascension. But clouds in scripture point to God's coming. They point to the blessing that that comes to those who love and worship him, and it also points to the judgment of those who refuse to bow the knee to King Jesus. So these are challenging things to know and understand. The book of Revelation gives us a bit more insight into Christ's return and in chapter 6 we see that it John describes the sky vanishing as a scroll that's being rolled up and it's 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 like there is an inbreaking of a heavenly reality upon this earthly place that we live so i can't completely describe it i know that we'll know when Jesus returns we don't know if he'll return in Houston or Katy or Boston or Shanghai. But everybody, all believers in all of those places will know that he has come, that he has returned, that he is coming to gather the elect to himself, that he is gathering all those that the Father has given to him with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first and then we, which who are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with him in the clouds. But the emphasis of all of this is that final phrase. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. We'll be with the Lord always. Believers who are dead in Christ will be meeting with believers who are physically alive in Christ. Joining to be together with Christ forever. That's the emphasis of this passage, and it should be a tremendous encouragement to us all. And we should encourage one another with these words. This passage became more familiar to me and and more meaningful to me um, a number of years ago when we, our family, were members of a church in Kansas where it was their custom to sing scripture that was set to music. Um, this passage was one of my favorites to sing because it it built to a crescendo on that phrase so shall we ever be with the lord so shall we ever be with the lord will ever be with the lord and that's the the emphasis of this text and that's the hope of believers and that's the hope for those of us that have laid to rest our loved ones and wondered when we will see them again and we've wondered lord why And maybe we wonder, why now, Lord? But we have a hope. We have a hope that we will ever be with the Lord. This passage is not about when the Lord will return or when will it be in relation to other newsworthy events. We are living in the last days. We've been in the last days for over 2,000 years. And we know that the next major event in history is the coming of the Lord, is Christ's return. And really, his resurrection 2,000 years ago and our resurrection and glorification are two episodes of the same event. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of our resurrection. The first fruits are those early indications of what the harvest is going to be. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of our resurrection. We can firmly trust in Christ in life and in death knowing that his resurrection has secured for us the sure promise of the resurrection from the dead. That is our hope. So what is your hope this evening? Perhaps you have been frightened by death, and, and many of us are. I, as I was preparing for this, I thought of my father who, who ministered for years and, and is still living and would often talk about death. And, and I, as a young person, felt found it a little creepy that he talked about death in the ways that he did. But he, as a minister, had ministered to families who had lost loved ones, and he, he thought about the finality of death. He thought about the gospel opportunities that came along with, with those who are grieving and, and being able to preach that in funerals. But as I've grown older, I've come to appreciate some of those things, and, and I think it is important that believers think about death not in a morbid sense not in certainly not in a in a despairing way but recognizing that it is coming for us unless the lord returns before we die but that there is a glorious hope for those who have gone on so i ask you this evening are you in christ Are you in union with the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sins and are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? If so, you have a glorious hope. Let me leave you with the words from the end of Philippians 3 where Paul says there in verses 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it, We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Are you ready for that day? If not, come to Christ today. Seek him today while he may be found. And if you're ready, wait with joyful anticipation. Christ is coming. Heaven is our home. And soon... We will be with him for all eternity. Let us pray.